BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Dream Bigger Podcast. If you're new here, I'm your host, Sif, and I'm the founder of Array. Let's get right into today's hot tip, which has to do with activewear. So I am constantly on the hunt for cute activewear, and I have found the perfect pair of leggings from Lilia's Active. It makes your ass look so good, like I'm talking a real-life peach emoji. They're the scrunch leggings. I got them in mint green and the matching top too, but I'm going to get them in every single color. So if you do get them, tag me on Instagram because I want to see. So let's chat about today's guest, Wednesday Martin. Wednesday is a New York Times bestselling author and cultural critic who has focused much of her work on female sexuality and monogamy. I got really interested in understanding female sexuality and the dynamics behind monogamy a few years back. And the two authors who have really shaped my views around the topic are Esther Perel and Wednesday Martin. So this conversation is a really big deal to me. Wednesday's book, Untrue, is a fascinating read, which I recommend to everyone. I think there are a lot of topics that are almost too taboo to speak about and female sexuality and monogamy is one of them which is why i think a conversation like this is so important i hope you guys learn from it and it inspires you to look into her work because it's super interesting so with that let's welcome wednesday to the show hear me okay yeah actually the sound quality is amazing what mic are you using i feel like i need it for virtual recordings myself yeah it's really good i have a yeti system i think it's called okay i gotta get it and this is actually not even as upgraded there's one that has like like a special (laughs) green thing and it's like a whole system that our podcast producer sent me that I haven't been able to set up because I'm in Los Angeles. So this is just kind of like level one. It's not even that um, sophisticated, but so Yeti. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm definitely going to get it. Um, yeah. So I have to tell you, I loved your book. I mean, oh, it's incredible. You. And I feel like we need more people like you in this world. Like I feel like people oh. just to like write great pieces of work and like, I'm just such a fan. That's really um, very nice of you to say. And I really appreciate it. I love um, hearing as a writer, you know, you just, it's important uh, when people let you know that your work has had an impact on them. So thank you for telling me that. I appreciate it. And thanks for reading my work. Yeah, truly. Like it's amazing. So like I, I have recommended it to literally everyone. Obviously, we'll get 
into all of it in the podcast, but like okay, happily, I, and I appreciate yeah. that. I mean, wow, there's nothing like word of mouth. You know, I can get out sure. and promote my work all I want to, but if you're telling your friends, that's uh, much more valuable and, and so incredibly helpful. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. And like, I mean, I will always, always kind of tell everyone I know about it. It's really, you're very talented. So I just kind of have to get that out there. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. And I really admire what you're doing with your blog and your, and your, you know, online presence. And I love, um, I love what you're drawing together. I wouldn't Thank expect you. I wouldn't expect to be on a podcast like yours. I love how you're just like connecting a lot of docs. Yeah, I just I love having conversations with thought leaders, you know. I think that people come to my platform to kind of hear from experts and I feel like sex is definitely such an important conversation <laughs> and like <laughs> especially like I think that's so for like the longest time and probably still there's like almost this disjoint between like sex and everything else where it's like yeah it's part of the wellness narrative I feel uh, you know it's so important and I think you're right people just want to break it off and have it be this separate thing and uh, the thing about sex is that it's not a separate thing it's part of health it's part of mental health but it's a really important part of physical health and it's just part of being whole so thanks yeah a hundred percent Let's dive into the questions. Um, So I actually first found you in like a magazine article. It was so funny. I was really, really sick with like the worst case of food poisoning. I was flying out of Vegas. Oh no. I picked up like one of those magazines and I read your work for the first time and I thought it was really fascinating. It was about like sexuality and non-monogamy. And I mean, that was just like, I was like, I'm obsessed with this woman's work. It's so good. So what led you into this area? Okay. Well, first of all, thanks. I'm glad I was part of your uh, food poisoning recovery. (laughs) You were. (laughs) I feel that's a very intimate connection to be with somebody at that moment. Um, And I'm glad you're all better. (laughs) Um, So yeah, what a funny moment to connect with somebody, right? Yeah, honestly, it was the best entertainment because I was just like, I was on my flight home. Like I had just like recovered, like literally I was just able to catch my flight, like hydrating and reading a magazine, kind of distracting myself. And there was your article, which is why I remember this detail so like vividly. Right. It was (laughs) at a particular moment. Well, I'm glad we shared that moment. And I did, when On True first came out, I did write a lot of articles. Um, And I did focus on women and monogamy because that intersection of women and monogamy is where so many misperceptions live. Um, We presume, because we've been told so, that monogamy is easier for women than it is for men. And that presumption is built on another presumption, which is that men are more highly sexed, are more sexual than women, uh, that they have stronger libidos. Some people use the term sex drive, uh, but a lot of people in sex research don't use that term anymore. Um, Sex is not a drive. You won't die if you don't have sex, although you will be unhealthier, I think. Um, There are ample data to show. So I really wrote on True for really personal reasons. You know, I had 
repeatedly in my life, I'm mostly heterosexual and I over and over had this pattern where I would be with a guy and he was great and everything was great, including the sexual connection. And then, you know, about a year in, um, we would move in together maybe, or maybe not, but we would make things uh, very committed and exclusive. And suddenly I was actually sexually bored. Mm -hmm. And then I would um, kind of find reasons to find fault with the relationship. I would presume, well, I'm sexually bored. So there's either wrong something, excuse me, there's either something wrong with me or something wrong with him or something wrong or broken with our relationship because I'm supposed to, here I am with this handsome, smart, uh, generous, kind, sexy man. And just when I should be thinking about long-term commitment and marriage and making this permanent, uh, my body is not interested anymore. Mm -hmm. And then I would often just find a way to blow up the relationship, I realized mm -hmm. in retrospect, uh, because it just was so impossible not to be attracted to other people. Um, mm -hmm. And I read that as a symptom that was some, that something was wrong. So why not accelerate how wrong this is? And often, you know, I would um, see somebody else on the DL without disclosing, and that would blow up a couple of times. One time, I tried to tell somebody uh, with whom things were getting very serious that I really treasured him and and loved our time together, but I wasn't into monogamy. Um, that caused a huge blow up. This was like 30 years ago or 25 yeah. years ago when non-monogamy uh, really wasn't in the vocabulary except maybe for gay men. Mm -hmm. So I tried all these various strategies to manage what I thought was a personal problem. And at the same time, I was well aware uh, from my training as a comparativist, somebody who studied both cultural anthropology and biological anthropology or evolutionary biology, I knew that there was a lot of bio and anthro-lit about um, what we might call promiscuous, and scientists still unfortunately use that term, and so do we, sexual behaviors of females across many different species, including human females. And um, that female promiscuity was far uh, from unusual, even though I always heard that men cheat and women, you know, want to lock men down and be monogamous, that, that female promiscuity was far from unusual. And I just sort of brought my personal behavior into line uh, with, with that kind of more obscure academic literature. And, you know, eventually by the time I was in my fifties, I thought it's really time to commit to this project and cross uh, all this literature over so that men and women uh, who are lay people, but might benefit from understanding who women really are sexually and how far apart it is from what they've been taught. So they can benefit from that. And one of my most important agendas was to make a book that was aimed at women, but invited men in because I like to say that when we sexually profile and misrepresent women, we're sexually profiling and misrepresenting men and people who identify as neither. So that's it in a nutshell. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, totally. I think it's really, really interesting. And actually like, you know, I do want to get into kind of 
a little bit about the on, on the findings that you kind of came to terms with while researching sure. your book because I thought it was yeah. really fascinating and as you said like I think that it is something that all women should read but also men should read like this is something I've like recommended to my partner like to my guy friends I feel like it's an incredible piece of work so what were your findings on non-monogamy and female sexuality? Thanks for teeing that up so nicely. And thanks for sharing it, not just with your female friends, but your male friends. I really appreciate that. Before we started, we talked a little about, you know, the power of um, our social circles and mm-hmm. and sharing information. And I, I appreciate that you shared with my uh, with your male and female friends about my book. Thank you for that. So... A brief word on my training. I mentioned earlier that I'm a comparativist. Mm -hmm. That means that unlike somebody who's, say, um, a clinical psychologist, right, Uh, I didn't just look at the psychological literature, why do women cheat, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because the psychological literature tends to position it as a personal problem. And I knew from my training as an anthropologist uh, and a primatologist that it wasn't just a personal problem. Mm -hmm. And I did what I have done in all my books. I marshaled many different discourses and I decided I was only going to talk when I talked about female sexuality, about the place where all the discourses converged. Mm -hmm. What were the newest findings about female sexuality from the field of medicine? What were the newest findings about female sexuality uh, from the field of primatology, right? The study of non-human primates, our closest relatives, apes and monkeys. What were the findings from the worldwide ethnographic data from from different cultures? Uh, What did sociologists have to say about it? What did regular women who had experiences of non-monogamy, firsthand experiences, what did they have to say about it? Uh, Basically, you know, I just refuse, I didn't, I also talked to psychologists mm-hmm. um, because when you're going to crack a tough nut, like what drives women's parenting behaviors, which is what I looked at in my book, Primates of Park Avenue, or mm-hmm. what drives our hostility towards stepmothers, which is what I looked at in uh, my book, Step Monster. If you're going to have a really meaty topic like this, my view is then you need to look at it from many different perspectives, right? It's mm-hmm. not enough for a psychologist uh, to tell us uh, women cheat because they have daddy issues. Sorry, no. If that yeah. were the if that were the case, uh, we wouldn't see such high rates of what some people call inf- infidelity among women. Um, we would have fixed that problem. And from what I see, uh, psychologists have not quote fixed the quote problem, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. of non dyadic sexuality. So I marshaled many different discourses as I had in my previous books, and I saw that they were, in fact, all converging on the single point that had been developing when I was an undergraduate and a graduate student as women moved more into uh, sciences. They were going out into the field. Um, They were talking to their patients, if they were doctors, they were talking to their patients that they were therapists, uh, they were interviewing their subjects if they were sociologists, they were looking at women across the world if they were anthropologists, and they were converging on a single finding, which is that females of most species are not more monogamous than males. 
we cannot assert that females are naturally more coy or choosy, as Darwin put it, sexually speaking, and they're not more monogamous. And in fact, what these women field scientists and scientists and social scientists were discovering is they had observations which suggested that non-monogamy was a very normal part of the repertoire of female sexual behavior across species, including among humans. Mm-hmm. And I just want to let that sit for a minute um, because it might sound like so little to assert, but I'll repeat it. Non-monogamy is a normal part of the repertoire of sexual behaviors of females of most species. Mm -hmm. And I think that can change so many women's lives and uh, their understandings of themselves, of their relationships, if they're in a relationship with another woman, um, or whether they're in a relationship with a man, um, or, you know, it can also change men's understanding. But what I saw repeatedly, especially I started with the primatological literature, and I saw that women had gone out into the field and they had been trained to believe what I had believed, which was the following. You know, females uh, get pregnant or they're the ones that lay eggs. And so they can, that, that they, one male does that to them. And after that, there's just like literally no benefit. Uh, to them of of mating multiply of mating with other males so so why would they do it so yeah they don't mm-hmm. uh, meanwhile this line of thinking went meanwhile uh, males of most species you know they're just uh, they got a lot of sperm right they got like there's so much of that and it's so randy and energetic and uh, you know needs to roam and wander and um, so it's just. Of course, males uh, want to mate multiply. I mean, they could impregnate many, many females. So of course, it makes sense that females who can get pregnant, of course, they want to be monogamous and lock down one super awesome guy, one alpha male. By the way, if a guy describes himself to you as an alpha male, he most certainly is not. Yep. Okay. And by the way, there are no alpha males uh, among primates. We're primates. Uh, there are alpha males among pack animals. That's a separate. I'll take us down. <laughs> I don't want to take us too far down that little cul-de-sac, but I'll write something about that and people can read it. Um, alpha male is a term that's just been so abused uh, mm-hmm. by humans. So to get back to my point, we had this idea that females want to lock down the most awesome male, right? Mm-hmm. And males just want to nail everything that doesn't move, all right? Or do you say nail everything that moves? I don't know. But you know what I'm talking about, right? And that's how we got this idea that males, including human men, uh, are more promiscuous naturally than than females of most species, including Mm -hmm. women. All right. So most of these field scientists and doctors and sociologists uh, had learned what I learned in, in undergraduate and graduate school, which is the following. Females don't benefit from mating multiply, and that's why they don't do it. Mm-hmm. Males benefit from mating multiply, and that's why they just have to do it. They just can't keep it in their pants. Mm-hmm. 
remember the first time I heard it in a lecture at the University of Michigan in an evolutionary biology class. I literally wanted to stand up and turn around and say, like, hold the phone. Like, I mate multiply and my girlfriends all mate multiply. Does any, are there any other women here who mate multiply? And I guarantee that if there had been no stigma, a lot of those hands would have gone up. But of course, mm-hmm. I didn't have the nerve to do that. Science was not on my side. Um, culture wasn't on my side. But I, I saw that my only other alternative was that I was broken. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, at this, you know, around the time I was having this uh, insight, like I said, thanks to Title IX, women had just been rushing into fields they hadn't been in before and they made observations Mm -hmm. and they observed when they went to study women in other cultures hold on like these women who you think are being monogamous uh, and we wrote about them as monogamous they're not hold on these women are being polyandrous and they're really thriving um hold on these women in polygynous cultures are like finding workaround strategies. Hold on. Even in places where human women die for it, uh, they seek out uh, novel partners and they seek out non-monogamy. Now, and then, like I said, field scientists were seeing it too. I can talk about primatology. Primatologists saw that non-human female primates were almost without exception promiscuous. And they knew due to their training in evolutionary biology, that that meant that they were going to have to gird up and use the scientific evidence to challenge the dominant narrative that males of most species are more sexual than females because they were seeing the opposite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's a long way of saying that as a comparativist, my job was to go around and find all this science that challenged confirmation bias, right? Mm-hmm. They, they were challenging all the science that had shored up this idea that males were more sexual than females naturally. And one of my favorite examples of this is Angus Bateman's study of fruit flies after World War II. Angus Bateman mm-hmm. was a geneticist and he studied Drosophila melanogaster, these fruit flies, and he gave them these funny genetic traits so that he could trace, you know, who had reproduced successfully and who hadn't. And uh, according uh, to the research, as it was communicated to the public, what Angus Bateman found was that the males benefited from mating multiply, but the females didn't. So fast forward over half a century later, uh, right here in Los Angeles, where you and I are right now, Sip, uh, a biologist named Patricia Gowady said, wait a second, why are are women scientists um, and some men scientists, why are they going out into the field and why are they seeing that like female orangutans are not actually monogamous and female mm-hmm. chimps are super promiscuous and female bonobos are super promiscuous and why are we seeing it among female birds that we thought were monogamous then when they're not why are we seeing it across cultures you guys has anybody tried to replicate Bateman's studies from right after World War II and <laughs> nobody had so Patricia Goatti tried to replicate his study and Mm -hmm. it was unreplicatable. And then further what was found was that Bateman's study had originally confirmed that females like males benefited from mating multiply. But that wasn't communicated because the only thing that fit 
in to the dominant narrative was, yeah, males benefit from mating multiply. It didn't fit into the narrative to say females benefited from mating multiply. Now, the danger of the Bateman study was that talk about confirmation bias. A bunch of men were in science at the time. There were a few exceptional, amazing women in science at the time, but it was mostly men. And they said, mm -hmm. yeah, of course, male fruit flies benefit from mating multiply because Darwin said that males are more eager and sexy and out there and pugnacious and assertive about sexuality and that females are coy mm -hmm. and retiring, not that interested. They just want one dude. So that fit right into those assumptions that the male scientists had, not just about the animal kingdom, but about themselves. And that... so that was the part of the study that got communicated rather than the other part. So thank God for Patricia Goatti. Thank mm. God for female scientists going out in the field. Thank God for Title IX. Thank God for STEM. Because it just took women asking the questions based on their own experience of different forms of curiosity, different forms of sympathy that they might have had for female animals or for women in other cultures. So they brought this, this perspective, which enhanced the science because it corrected confirmation bias. Um, so within my work, that's what I tried to do um, as a comparative list. You know, I, I looked at all those different fields and I spoke to experts in all those different fields. And it, all their insights converged on the point that monogamy is no easier for women or females of most species than it is for males or men. And that, in fact, monogamy is, in all likelihood, a tighter shoe for females and women than it is for men. And I get into the evolutionary backstory of why monogamy is harder for women in the aggregate than it is for men. Mm -hmm. um, I get into that. Uh, a lot in Untrue. And I also get into the contemporary sex research that, that proves it as well. Mm -hmm. Really fascinating stuff. So then Wednesday, why do you think monogamy has been put on this pedestal when kind of like the, the science and the research is showing that maybe it's not the only path that leads to like success, you know? Right. Well, that's such a nice way of framing the question um, because it gives me so much room and it's so rich and suggestive the way you frame that question. Um, let me sort of talk about the first part of it, Sif, which is you said, why do we put monogamy on a pedestal? Mm -hmm. And then I would say the second part of the question is, and why especially do we expect it from women? Um, we really... I, first thing I want to say is the view from anthropology, which is my jam, and F-Bio, which is my jam, um, is that the only consistent thing about human sexuality is how much variation there is, right? Mm -hmm. Like people do pretty well in contexts where there's polyandry, where women have more than one husband. People do pretty well in contexts where there's uh, polygyny, where men have more than one wife, although there are some anthropologists who uh, have found that women don't do as well there. Um, then there are situations where women uh, do well when they're asexual, right? Some people can mm -hmm. do really well being asexual. Uh, some people are just into um, like foot worship and, and they report uh, high levels of sexual satisfaction. Um, some people are into monogamy and they report high levels of satisfaction there. Some people only like group sex and they mm -hmm. report high levels of sexual satisfaction. There's not any one way. Mm -hmm. We evolved to be super 
flexible sexual and social strategies. That's why we're here. Literally because we could thrive in lots of different sexual situations. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons we're here as a species. And our evolutionary backstory, uh, far from the story about how men were in caves with cave women and cave babies, <laughs> and the men brought back the meat and the women like cooked it on the cave stove. Mm-hmm. Um, we now know that we evolved as cooperative breeders, right? And the reason we're here is we made it multiply. And we helped because we made it multiply, we were very invested uh, in everyone's offspring in our band. So we raised these other kids as if they might be our own because they might be mm-hmm. if we were, especially uh, if you were a male uh, early or later hominin or early human male. So mm-hmm. the evolutionary backstory of dyadic sexuality, like partnered sex and non-monogamy is very different from what we've been taught. And we taught that caveman bringing the meat back to his wife and baby uh, story for a really long time. My friend Chris Ryan in his book, Sex at Dawn, calls that the Flintstoneification um, of of our early evolutionary uh, story. And so that's a really good point that we imported this kind of like 1950s suburban mm-hmm. set of expectations uh, on on our evolutionary backstory, and it doesn't fit at all. And in fact, you know, we were more like polyamorists, if you want to use a contemporary analogy. Um, so 12,000 years ago, something big happened. And we transitioned from these cooperative breeding Mm -hmm. hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists. We started to domesticate plants a little bit, mess around with it, and then it became our main thing. And Mm -hmm. agriculture became our main thing. And I won't belabor the point too much, but I will say, Sif, that the reason that we came to enshrine monogamy and put it on a pedestal and make women the guardians of monogamy is because we transitioned from hunting and gathering to plow agriculture. Mm -hmm. And when we shifted the means of production like that, we changed female fates utterly. We invented the notion of property. It gave rise to this idea that, well, now there's progeniture. If I have property, I want to pass it down to the right kid. I need to make sure that the woman that I'm with is only having sex with me. Right. Mm. So you had your farm, you had your grain stores now, that was a new thing. And you had the perimeter of your farm, you had to defend it. And then you had the woman that you were with. And like, by God, those kids that she was bearing had to be yours. Otherwise, you might pass your property down to the wrong kid, right? You might, might be a displacement of your parental investment. At the same time, plow agriculture made women more sedentary. They couldn't be running around anymore. They didn't bring in the calories, so their status went way down. They Mm -hmm. didn't move around all day, so their fat stores went up, and that jacked up their fertility. Now they're having one kid after another instead of, you know, maybe a four-year period in between. They couldn't go out in the bush with a lover. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have the same kind of autonomy. They were under the watchful eyes of their husbands and maybe their husbands' families on the farm. So everything changed with the plow. And I always say to women, isn't it amazing? I mean, this is where I'm a 
freak about anthropology and it's not everybody can relate, but I, I will say to women, isn't it absolutely amazing that your sexuality was formed by plow agriculture and fruit flies, right? And so one of the reasons we put monogamy up on a pedestal is that we made this transition to plow agriculture 12,000 years ago, and we switched up our notions of property and propriety, right? Mm -hmm. Once we switched to this idea that there was property, that we had to pass it down to the right kids, and that that meant that women should be monogamous, we changed all our expectations of female behavior. So the plow, as my friend Helen Fisher, the anthropologist says, the plow is the worst thing that has ever happened to women. And I believe her about that. And uh, that's the main reason people expect women to be monogamous. Honestly, I remember reading about this whole thing in your book, and I was just completely blown away. Like, I just, I couldn't believe that that's kind of where it rooted from. And I mean, when, when you break it down like that, it makes so much sense. Mm. You know, if people wanted to really dig into it, Sif, there is a paper, I refer to it um, in Untrue, and I really dig into the paper for anybody who's feeling really wonky. I can send you um, the link to put in the show notes, but it's a fascinating paper by economists at Harvard and UCLA who looked across dozens of cultures and discovered that in settings where there had been plow agriculture, women had markedly lower rates of political, meaningful political participation and markedly lower levels of meaningful labor participation. Men had the upper hand anywhere there had been plow agriculture. Wow. Um, yeah. Then they found something even more incredible. They found that if people moved away from the plow agriculture settings, those beliefs and those inequalities persisted even if people moved thousands of miles away. And they also found that if a woman married a guy whose ancestors, mm -hmm. parents, grandparents, came from plow agricultural settings, those women also experienced marked gender inequality. So oh. the plow, some people might say that was a long time ago. That started 12,000 years ago. You know, we don't even live in an ecology anymore where we're agrarian. So that doesn't matter anymore. Yes, it does. Because these biases and beliefs about the rightful place of men and women, you know, it was harder for women to push uh, a plow. It was harder for women to control draft animals only because one of the real advantages that men have over women is upper body strength. Mm -hmm. So when the plow came along to our relatively egalitarian gender roles that had persisted until then, the plow just fit into the one advantage that men had over women, upper body strength. And then the plow became critical to eating, to surviving, to living. And so men were out there now being the primary producers because they had more upper body strength. And so women had to be in the house, right? So the plow gave rise to many things, including the idea that men should be outside and women should be inside. I still see that at my house in the Hamptons when I walk around. 
Mm-hmm. I still see all the men are outside doing the lawn work and all the women are inside being the housekeepers. Mm-hmm. So we continued. I'm so sorry for the background noise. I'm in LA and sometimes a motorcycle goes Oh, by. that's okay. <laughs> hey, hey guy, like gunning your motorcycle. Hey, <laughs> Hey, beneficiary of the plow ecology, (laughs) being outside, being a man. Um, Yeah, so I see that. So you'll see that still in in places where there are really gendered divisions of labor, right? So like I said, housekeeping is usually women work inside the house and men uh, work outside the house. And you will find that in ecologies where it's normal for men to be inside the house and women to be outside, uh, often those will be places where there is paddy agriculture or hoe agriculture, because those were things that women could very easily do, right? If you have a rice paddy, uh, it's all hands on deck. Women can be super helpful and children can be super helpful. And then you have a more egalitarian thing going on. Uh, Hoe agriculture, women can do hoe agriculture and be taking care of their kids at the same time. They don't have to keep their kids away from dangerous draft animals and be inside and, and be not only secondary producers, but more like consumers, right? Like a drag Mm -hmm. on household resources. So you really see the weird way in which agriculture has sealed women's sexual fates and job prospects even today. Now, something interesting happened in the Hamptons during the pandemic, which is that I started walking around my neighborhood and other neighborhoods because what else was there to do but walk around? And mm-hmm. I saw that women were doing yard work. Interesting. I had never seen that before. Mm-hmm. I also saw the women driving the cars of their bosses, you know, like um, the um, mostly in the Hamptons. It's a Latinx population uh, mm-hmm. doing house and yard work. And whereas before I had seen uh, Latino men driving the boss car, like the Escalade or the... Mm-hmm. Uh, big fancy car. Uh, I now saw women doing that. Um, So here's what happened, I believe, as a social scientist, men are asymmetrically affected by COVID. Um, And we know that people of color were asymmetrically uh, impacted by COVID. So that would mean that men of color, uh, including Latinx men in the Hamptons, were asymmetrically impacted negatively uh, by COVID perhaps. Um, Mm -hmm. It could also be that there was simply um, an all-hands-on-deck mentality, and then women proved that they were very confident and very capable. They were every bit as capable of driving around the boss's car. They were Mm -hmm. every bit as capable of doing the lawn work. Uh, They were every bit as capable of doing those things that required upper body strength, maybe the lawn work. Um, But um, you know, somehow this idea that they couldn't push a plow, right, has impacted uh, women's job prospects uh, for many years and has um, enshrined brawn, right, mm-hmm. as if brawn uh, is the most important thing. So what I wanted to say is what we sh- when, when the ecology shifts, so for mm-hmm. example, when there's a pandemic, right, that mm-hmm. can shake up our long-held assumptions uh, and gender roles based on the plow. Um, and the other thing that can happen is there can be shifts like the ones that were happening before the pandemic, where we're going from settings where there's brawn, uh, really fetishized, like farming and factory work, right? And mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. where men were supposedly better at 
doing the forklift and Mm -hmm. moving big boxes. If our whole economy were about big box stores, agriculture, and factory work, women would never be getting a leg up. But now that we're switching to tech, to collaboration, to different forms of innovation, and now that brawn is not quite as important anymore, um, things are shifting. And I think that's one of the reasons that Trump was so successful. Um, We were in this transitional moment where uh, brawn didn't matter so much anymore. Mm -hmm. And men were losing their shit, right? Mm Not only did brawn not matter that much anymore, but like Me Too was happening. We were a couple, a few decades after the big first wave of feminism, things were shifting a lot. And um, along came Trump to say, hey, women are supposed to be decorative. Yeah. Uh, they're just supposed to be sex toys for men. Men were big swinging dicks and we need to put our seat everywhere. Um, so, you know, the plow, uh, plow agriculture ecology brought us Trump. It, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how things change. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. So am I, I think, you know, the world is ready for it. And I think like, you know, it's, it's great that women like yourself and, you know, science is actually talking about this now. So, yeah, I mean, you still will go to a conference and, one of the big, we didn't really talk about sex research yet, Sif, but mm-hmm. you know what the sex research is showing now that women have been in sex research for a long time, if I could just quickly summarize, mm-hmm. is two things. The first thing that contemporary sex researchers have found in the aggregate now that more women are doing sex research is that when measured correctly, the female libido is no lower than the male libido. When we measure it at the right time in the menstrual cycle, when we look at responsive desire versus just spontaneous desire, we see that male and female Uh, levels of uh, libido uh, are quite matched. And then the other thing that we have seen, and the second shift in the sex research that we've seen since women have become sex researchers, and you know, most of sex research is done by women now, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Like, for example, membership in STAR, the Society for Sex Therapy and Research, is, I believe, 70% women, um, a representative from STAR told me. So I like to call sex researchers a a female dominant species. Mm -hmm. But um, now that women have moved into sex research, not only are we learning that female and women's and men's libidos are more closely matched than we ever knew, we're also uh, learning that uh, women, it's women who start to struggle uh, to want the sex they can't have in a long-term cohabiting relationship before men do. And that's in study after study, well-designed, well well-controlled, uh, longitudinal study after study from multiple countries. So just wanted to, to put that information in there. I'm sorry that I interrupted you. No, not at all. And I think it's really fascinating that you say that because, you know, I've kind of spoken to so many of my girlfriends about this where, you know, like they will be in a relationship for a while and then you know, maybe lose interest and they feel like maybe it's something to do with them. And I think that like the more this is kind of openly talked about, the more Mm -hmm. we start to realize that, no, there's not something wrong with us. This is just kind of like we have been misinformed about who we really are. I mean, so misinformed. You know what I like to say to women? Remember when I said before, we evolved as flexible sexual and social strategists. And the reason we're here is we can do so many things, right? Mm -hmm. We can be monogamous. We can be uh, polygynous. We can be polyandrous. 
Yes, that is true. But let's talk about the soup that women were cooked in. Mm-hmm. Our primordial soup was promiscuity. We we were cooked in the soup of non-dyadic sexuality. Mm-hmm. Being promiscuous, if you want to use that term, or just being being non-dyadic mm-hmm. conferred so many benefits uh, to early human females, um, to, to female hominins, um, and continues to confer so many benefits to our closest non-human primate relatives uh, like bonobos and chimps. Yeah. Uh, we see that when, for example, um, a chimp mates multiple males in a row, right? She'll go from one to the other, to the other, to the other. And male primatologists and men love to look at it as a gangbang model. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the opposite. It's that she's soliciting the copulations and going from one male to another, often in rapid sequence. And what is mm-hmm. the reason for that? Well, serial consortship, being non-monogamous, confers a lot of benefits, you're upping your chance that you'll get really high quality sperm. What if you're only mating with your female chimp and you're only mating with one male and he has kind of crappy sperm? What if it's got like really low sperm motility, for example? Mm-hmm. Or what if that male is infertile and he's the only male uh, you're mating? Yeah. There goes your reproductive success. You're not going to become pregnant. Mm-hmm. What happens if you're only mating with one male and you guys don't have heterozygosity, right? The female chimp and the male chimp don't have heterozygosity, which is you're so deliciously genetically different from each other that it's going to result in a really robust pregnancy, right? If there's too much genetic similarity, uh, we have genetic issues and, and lose pregnancies or, mm-hmm. or give birth to offspring who sadly don't survive. So if you're only mating with one male, if you're a female chimp only mating one male, uh, wow, you're just like, your chances of you are taking a big risk that there will not be heterozygosity, yeah. right? Now let's talk about if you're mating with multiple males, let's talk about something called sperm depletion. Males don't have endless sperm. That stuff is expensive to produce. It's, uh, you know, energetically, it takes a lot for, for males of most species to produce sperm. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're a female and you're mating with multiple males, ooh, you're saying like, take that to mm-hmm. females, right? You're depleting the sperm available to other females, right? Better for you. Here's another thing that happens. If you mate with multiple males in a species where there's infanticide, where males typically come in and kill uh, the, the, off, the nursing offspring of a lactating female so that mm-hmm. she will go into estrus again and they can mate with her. Um, and that happens in a lot of mammal species. In a lot of mammal species, males come in and commit infanticide. Mm-hmm. They never commit infanticide uh, against uh, the offspring of a female they have mated with, even if it's only once. So you're a female, you're getting great sperm, you're increasing your odds of great sperm motility, great sperm quality, great heterozygosity. You're depleting the sperm available to rival females. And you are nullifying, in many cases, the chances that a male, a marauding male, will come in and kill your offspring. You're also increasing the chances that multiple males will be like, 
well, that might be my offspring because I had sex with her. So I'm not going to kill her offspring, but also I'm going to like provision her during her next pregnancy because maybe that'll be my offspring. Maybe I'll provision this offspring right now because uh, it might be mine. It might be mine, yeah. Yeah, let me be nice to her too and uh, support her during her pregnancy because like, hey, that might be mine, right? There were so many benefits. There mm. are so many benefits to the female non-human primate who mates multiply. So, so many benefits Yeah, that she developed a clitoris, that she evolved a clitoris which is this super, this organ of super pleasure that gives her orgasms. Let's go back to that female chimp Mm -hmm. rapidly mating maybe five males in a row. Most males, human, most, most primate males, including human males are capable of a single copulatory bout of about five to eight minutes. Mm -hmm. And then they have something, um, uh, they have something called the refractory period. Mm-hmm. Female non-human primates and human females, human women, <laughs> sorry, we do not have a refractory period. We can have orgasm after orgasm after orgasm. Okay, so have in the back of your mind all these delicious benefits to mating multiply if you're a female. Now, add in the fact of having a clitoris and that it feels so, so good it's mm-hmm. only there for pleasure. It's not really there for anything else, unlike the penis, right? Which is functional. It's for urinating and it's for uh, ejaculating. But the clitoris is just to feel good, although there are some um, data suggesting that when you have an orgasm, your clitoris, which is uh, enormous and internal and extensive, that all those interior parts of your clitoris, there are data suggesting that it's squeezing your vagina. And maybe if you're heterosexual and uh, not using a condom, pulling sperm up. So that's a, that's a different um, cul-de-sac for us, if you will. But anyway, imagine this chimp female. Uh, wow, she just seems like why on earth would she mate all these different males? It's not because she's saying, wow, I really want a robust offspring and I need some heterozygosity. Let me mate with multiple males. She's mating with multiple males because it feels good. And she has once had this experience where he didn't last long enough. She quickly hopped on the next chimp penis. Mm-hmm. He didn't last long enough. She jumped on the next one, the third one. Now she's up to maybe 15 to 24 minutes of copulation. And she's in the zone where she needs perhaps about uh, 20 minutes of penetration, if that is a route to orgasm for her, which it is for many female chimps and bonobos. Bang. Because of her clitoris, she has an orgasm. We know that in at least six species of macaques and among chimps and bonobos, female orgasm is a fact. And (laughs) one of the ways we know it, if I could just interject, let me spill a little primatology tea. There's this researcher at the time he was a graduate student and he was studying orgasm in female uh chimps um in a in a clinical setting right not in the wild and he was um actually his job 
was, you know, to find a female, uh, what one of the, take a female chimp who was an estrus and stimulate her manually uh, mm-hmm. as if he were copulating with her, with his hand and uh, stimulating her manually. And uh, that was his job as a graduate student. Oh gosh. He, he's one of the people who helped us first uh, understand that female chimps have orgasms. And the way he knew is that he felt that the female chimps uh, vaginal uh, muscles were tightening in that way that happens when a female primate is about to have an orgasm. And he stopped and took his hand out mm-hmm. and she turned around and grabbed his hand and gave him such a look as if to say, you better put your damn hand back in there. Cause I'm almost there. Oh my gosh. That is hysterical. We, we also know that non-human female primates, uh, have orgasms because we have primatologists have done tests uh, with electrodes and um, have observed muscle contractions and know that non-human, non-human female primates have orgasms. My point, and I do have one, is this. Because non-human female primates have orgasms, we know that orgasm is an ancient pre-hominin adaptation among females. And we know when we observe our closest non-human uh, female primate uh, relatives, bonobos and chimps, uh, not only do they have orgasms, uh, but they will go to great lengths to have one. They will mm-hmm. copulate with multiple males in a row until they have an orgasm because the male can't keep going long enough often, right? Mm-hmm. So they just will copulate one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Stop reading that as a gangbang as male chimps are so sexy and randy, they just want to do that to females. It's the female mating multiple males in a row mm-hmm. in, in a 20-minute in a period to get herself uh, to the payoff of an orgasm. Now, we are not macaques. We are mm-hmm. not monkeys. We are apes. We are uh, closely related to chimps and bonobos. But my point is, we cannot ignore the evolutionary backstory of all the benefits that female promiscuity has conferred mm-hmm. and that females were doing it because of the payoff of orgasm. So to me, what I'm trying to say is the presence of the human female clitoris, a woman's clitoris, mm-hmm. tells us an incredible amazing and unexpected story about how we got where we are now and why it is so hard for so many women to be monogamous. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, so you have studied so many couples, right? Because that was like really a part of your, your like process of writing untrue. So during this time when you were speaking to couples, did you find that women who were in sort of non-monogamous or kind of open relationships or had a different kind of setup than your traditional monogamous relationship could also be successful because I kind of want to like break this myth that we have. Great, great point. Okay, so I love this question. Um, First of all, just to clarify, um, I interviewed um, uh, over two dozen women who uh, were non-monogamous. And I just want to first, Sifat, I know we have to end soon, but I want to just first make a point about nomenclature, about language and vocabulary, yeah. which is that um, I really hope people who listen um, 
might benefit from my belief and might share the belief with other people that we have to stop using the term infidelity. Um, yes. They're implying that somebody's an infidel, that they're a non-believer, that there's something wrong with them if they're not monogamous. Um, so I like to use uh, the term just non-monogamy. Yeah. And some people, some people disclose their non-monogamy. They tell people about it. Uh, and some people don't disclose uh, their non-monogamy. And as a social scientist, while I know it can be extremely hurtful if a woman doesn't disclose her uh, preference to be non-monogamous, that can cause a world of hurt. Um, it's not my job to judge that. So I simply, I don't like the term ethical non-monogamy. I don't like the term consensual non-monogamy. And on my Twitter, you can find out why I don't. Um, but I really just like the term non-monogamous. Um, and it can be disclosed or it can be undisclosed. And, you know, some women don't have the privilege uh, to disclose that they're not monogamous because like a woman in the United States, for example, she might be shot in the face, right? She might be killed by an angry male partner if mm -hmm. she's not monogamous. So I always, I always like to say, let's, let's stop saying cheating. Let's stop saying infidelity. Uh, let's just use the term monogamy. And if we yeah. feel we need to put an extra descriptor on it, we can say disclosed or undisclosed. You talk, people who talk about it and people who don't talk about it. Um, okay, so anyway, just that point on nomenclature. And then, yeah, let's talk about different relationship containers. Um, as I said, we evolved as cooperative breeders. So whenever people tell me that polyamory is unnatural, the first thing I always say is there's no natural way to be. You know, we evolved to be very flexible about our sexual and social arrangements, and that's why we're here. So there's nothing, don't talk to me about natural, but if you're going to use that language, uh, most of our evolutionary prehistory, almost all of it was spent being cooperative greeter, breeders. So if we do have a groove in our brains um, for a relationship style, it's uh, not monogamy, it's multiple partnerships. Somebody um, reached out to me recently. She wanted to talk to me. And um, it was so interesting because I thought she might, uh, I know her and I thought she might be telling me uh, that she was going to get engaged to a man that she had been seeing. And it had been a somewhat tempestuous relationship. So I was curious. She said, I have so much to tell you about. And when we sat down, I hadn't seen her for the pandemic. When we sat down, um, what she told me was not that she was engaged to this man to be married, but that she had started dating and that she was dating a couple and that it was really fun for her and that she loved being the center of attention. And mm -hmm. uh, she really hadn't previously uh, considered dating a heterosexual couple, um, but that it was, it was really wonderful for her and she was getting a lot of benefits out of it. So mm -hmm. I think it's time in the future, I hope in the near future, we will be opening our eyes and our minds to different relationship containers that work. Maybe a relationship container that would work for you. I'm just using the generic you mm -hmm. for the person listening. Maybe you would really thrive um, dating a couple. Maybe that would be really fun for you. Maybe after dating a couple for a year, um, maybe you would uh, prefer, um, you know, to be in a dyad, a monogamous dyad. Um, maybe after that, you want to live in a group house with your 10 best friends uh, and live that way for a while. 
Um, there are so many ways to do it. You do not have to find one person and be monogamous and lock it down for life. I hope we are going to be dispensing with that. At the very least, I hope that people, especially women, will feel freed up to say before they get into a relationship, oh, I want to talk to you about my preferences about monogamy. And then hopefully they will be freed up to say, I don't like monogamy, or I really want monogamy right now, or I really want monogamy, you know, for a year and then we can reassess it. Or um, I want to, I want to see you, but I also like to date women, a woman might say to a man, or I like to date couples, right? So there are so many different ways. And can I really quickly say one thing for the women out there uh, who might be listening and the men who might be listening who, and the women who might be saying about themselves, yeah, well, I don't even like sex anymore. Mm -hmm. I've been in a relationship for three years with my, let's say my male partner, because most of the sex research, alas, is done on uh, cis cisgender hetero uh, men and women, I'm sad to say. Um, those women might be saying, yeah, well, I don't even like sex anymore. I stopped. I went off sex after three years. And the guys might be saying, oh, yeah, she's saying that women struggle with monogamy. Well, my girlfriend doesn't even want to have sex. Guess why? It's probably not because she's broken. It's probably not because your relationship is broken. It's probably not because your dick isn't good enough. It's probably because she's a normal human woman being a normal human woman. And she has hit the wall where on average between years one and four, what repeated studies have found from across culture is that between years one and four of an exclusive cohabiting relationship, a woman's libido plunges. Not because she doesn't like sex, but because having sex with the same person over and over and over is something that becomes difficult for women before it becomes difficult for men. And my book is full of studies uh, that show this, as is my article in the Atlantic called Women, the Bored Sex. So for all those women saying this doesn't apply to me, like I'm bored of sex, I just have sex to make him happy or to make her happy. Um, there's a reason for that. The reason for that is that you evolved uh, really in, in a sauce of promiscuity and you're not getting the variety and novelty and adventure that you need, but you can, and you don't even have to step outside of your relationship for it. You can, you can do a lot of other stuff. So I just wanted to say that. And the other thing I wanted to say, Sip, is that, um, I myself did not study couples as a comparativist. What I do is I take all the available data, all the studies, mm -hmm. in this case, over 250 studies, many of them about couples, and I mm -hmm. crunch that data and then I cross it. I make it accessible uh, for those of us who are just regular people interested in cutting edge information and studies about our sexuality and our relationships. So that's uh, what I did in this book, but I did interview uh, several people, women who were not monogamous and who were thriving. Mm -hmm. um, and I interviewed one man in Untrue who uh, said to me, I had known him for many years and he knew that I was writing a book about women and non-monogamy. And after asking me a lot of questions, he said, I want to talk to you about my marriage because my wife has two husbands. So 
if for people who want to like really get into the juicy details and the storytelling, uh, it's all there. Um, and the reason and it's this, really good, <laughs> but the reason those stories are there is those stories are just a symptom of how rich and interesting and sort of undiscovered as yet the truth about female sexuality is. Yeah. Yeah. How can we open up the conversation around sexuality? Okay. First of all, if you identify as a woman, make sure it's safe. Mm -hmm. Some of us are so privileged. I mean, I'm so privileged. I live in a context where I know people who live in like sex positive group houses in Brooklyn, right? Like Hacienda. Uh, that's really privileged. I know, I know women who live in metropolitan settings like New York and Los Angeles uh, who it's physically safe for them to be in open relationships. Um, but I also know and have interviewed women who fear for their very lives if yeah. they uh, so much as uh, let on that they've had a non-monogamous thought, literally fear for their lives. So the first thing I would say is make sure you are safe. Make sure it is safe for you to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And if it is not, you're in a generally unsafe situation. If you are with somebody with whom you would be physically or emotionally unsafe if you discuss non-monogamy, uh, that's a really good metric that your partner is not about equality and that you might rethink that, that context, uh, that relationship if it's a setting where you can thrive and ask the questions that are normal for women to want to ask um, and think about solutions that are normal for women to want to think through. Uh, so the first thing is safety. Uh, the second thing is I would say to be as non-threatening and collaborative as possible. If you are partnered in a long-term partnership, I always say blame it on me. I always say if women want to open up uh, a discussion about opening up a relationship, blame it on me. Just go like, oh my God, I heard... Dr. Wednesday Martin was on a podcast. Have you heard of her? And she wrote a whole book about how monogamy is really actually at least as difficult for women as it is for men, maybe more so. Just blame me. Just 100% blame me. Or blame my friend Chris Ryan. Just be like, oh my God, I'm reading. Either say like I'm reading Untrue or be like, oh, I'm reading this book, Sex at Dawn. Have you heard about it? Blame somebody else. And then um, talk about it. Don't think that it's going to be one big discussion of 10 hours. My God, you'll never get out of there. You'll hate your partner. <laughs> you'll hate your partner's guts. Just like take it slow, right? Mm-hmm. Don't feel like, and you know, think about context. Like people are on their way over for brunch. You're not going to be like, hey, so how about opening up our relationship? Todd's coming over and he is fine, right? <laughs> right? Read the moment, know your audience. Don't do it at a time when your partner, whether it's a woman or a man is feeling really vulnerable when they're sick, when they're not liking their body, Mm -hmm. do it, you know, just think about your moment and take your time introducing the topic. And it would not be a bad idea to talk to a relationship coach in advance and maybe even do just buy a relationship coaching session from somebody who's not judgmental about non-monogamy and just work with them about how you might start this conversation with your partner. Those would be my suggestions. 
yeah, very good pieces of advice. And my last question for you Wednesday is, um, what are some resources that people can turn to? Like, obviously untrue, like what are some great pieces of work or, yeah. um, relationship coaches or whatever that yeah. you would recommend? Oh, well, thank you so much for this because it's so good to have the opportunity to talk about the work of some of my colleagues that I'm really inspired by. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that if you're interested in opening up your relationship, um, there's a book called Opening by Tristan Tarmino, um, which is, that's a woman's name, by the way. And she's a therapist who has worked with many polyamorous um, people. And she's worked with many couples who open up their relationships. And she's counseled many individuals who want to do that. So I think that book might be interesting and start interesting discussions, although be careful. You know, uh, some of our partners, if we're partnered, might be very uh, upset seeing that book. It might start a great conversation or it might just take you down a really negative rabbit hole. There's nothing wrong with keeping your reading kind of private if that mm-hmm. feels safer and better. But I, I always uh, recommend uh, that book. And um, I love this resource called Open Love New York, which is for people who are polyamorous, who identify as polyamorous or who are polycurious. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my friends, Misha Lynn, uh, was the co-founder of Open Love New York many years ago. She's a trans woman who told me, well, once I decided I could be trans, I decided I could rethink everything, including what relationship container worked for me. So uh, Open Love New York is another great resource. Um, wow. The, um, rela- I-, I love a book by my friend, Dr. Tammy Nelson, called The New Monogamy, uh, mm-hmm. which is just a wonderful wonderful book. And Tammy believes that monogamy is a spectrum. On one end, there's don't even look at porn because that feels like a betrayal, right? And on the other end of the spectrum, there's like, well, sure, you can have sex with other people as long as I'm your primary and I and you do what it takes to make me feel primary. So I think that those are three really good resources that might help people who want to think about whether monogamy is for them and whether they might want to tweak uh, their arrangement or uh, who are just curious. Amazing. And lastly, tell everyone where they can find you, your social media, you know. Sure. (laughs) I have a perpetual um, like life struggle with Instagram, which is mostly where I live on social media because I'm constantly shadow banned. Um, But on Instagram, I'm at Wednesday Martin PhD. So come follow me there and, uh, if you can't follow me at Wednesday Martin PhD, just go to your settings and go to uh, health and report a problem and say, I can't follow Wednesday Martin PhD. Put her back in the algorithm and that way you'll help me and we can <laughs> see each other. And on Twitter, um, I'm at Wednesday Martin. And so those are my two little social media places uh, where I like to be. I have a podcast called True Sex and Wild Love, which I enjoy a lot. My co-host is Whitney Miller, who's a relationship coach and a good person to talk to as well if you're looking to talk to a relationship coach. And finally, uh, every Wednesday, I do something called Wineless Wednesday for Sober People. I do an Instagram Live, 5.30 Eastern Time every Wednesday on my IG. 
and I usually talk to somebody, an expert. Um, sometimes it's an expert on sex. Most recently, it was somebody who's into pole dancing. Um, and uh, sometimes I talk to female entrepreneurs, um, and I just have them on, and we talk for half an hour, 45 minutes. And if you're sober, uh, you might especially enjoy that because it's a sober space. So those are my uh, various ecological niches. And I would love to connect with your listeners there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Wednesday. This was amazing. Thank you, Sip. It was great to see you and to talk to you. And I love your work as well. So this was a really nice opportunity for me. Thank you. Thank you.